All right, church family, we're coming back to scripture right now in week 11 of a sermon series as we go through a very significant section of scripture in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, with it being the 11th week, we're in verse 19. If you've missed any of them, you can get caught up in the beginning, go to our YouTube channel, watch the sermon, Love Without Hypocrisy. And if you've been with us, you've heard me say many times that in this section of scripture, just 13 verses, the Apostle Paul uses 38 verbs to describe the activity of followers of Jesus. And it's such a great reminder that there is a life that Jesus calls us to. This is so much more than just belief in Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, but now we get to live for Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we get to this verse 19, I'm going to read for us verse 19 and 20. Verse 20 will be next week, but I want you to hear the whole thought. But let me share something before I get started. This is a very specific verse speaking to followers of Jesus about a very specific thing, about what to do when you, when I, want to seek revenge when someone personally wrongs us. And so my task as a preacher, as I've prayed for this and as I've studied for this moment, is to be faithful to the text. And I know that in this one verse, it doesn't speak to the fullness of God's heart. In this verse, it doesn't speak to how we approach justice in all of its fullness as revealed in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Nor does this one verse speak to what God doesn't want us to do, which is to be either complicit with evil or to stuff the experience of being wronged, nor is it telling us to be silent. And we absolutely have to be open to God's leading and the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what scripture says rather than us telling scripture what we want it to say. So as you hear this message, would you line it up with scripture? I'm a human being, I'm fallible. And ultimately I submit to Jesus as my Lord and my savior who alone can perfectly communicate God's heart. And I simply, I just wanna get out of the way. So as you hear things, if there's things that you say, gosh, well, that's interesting. Does he really mean that, would you? Maybe even reach out to me, reach out to the church. But most importantly, would you line it up with God's word? That is the authority for our lives. That's where we take our marching orders from. Not only to be reminded of how to live, but how to love of who we are and whose we are. So let me read for us Romans 12, verse 19 and 20. I'm just gonna preach on verse 19. Again, 20 will be next week, but I think it's essential for us to hear the flow of thought here again in this very powerful passage of scripture. This is Romans 12, 19 and 20. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads." This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. As we say every single week, thanks be to God. 
Okay, first things first. Keep those Bibles open. I want you to see how Paul uses a very significant word in this litany of verbs. He says, beloved. How significant it is for us to hear how Paul addresses those followers of Jesus. They are in the midst of the Roman Empire. It was just years before where the entire group of Jewish people in Rome had been kicked out of Rome. Persecution was happening. People were being threatened for their faith. It was just a number of years before even the Apostle Paul was beheaded for his faith. Just a number of years away before Caesar Nero tried to mass exterminate followers of Jesus. In addition to that, there was, there was discord among the early church. And brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ and within that family of God, they would, they would wrong one another. And naturally, as it is true for every human being in the flesh, apart from God in relationship with us, we want to not just have an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We don't want just justice. Sometimes we want revenge. And in those moments, likely we, we fill with rage. We, we see red is the phrase. And the Apostle Paul does something so beautiful, so spectacular. He says, beloved. And he addresses them with a name, with a title, with an identity that is the complete opposite of shame. You see, shame is very different than guilt. Shame is the belief that you are wrong. You are not enough. You are not worthy, that there is something deficient in you, in your identity. You lack a sense of worth. You are somehow lesser than. Guilt, on the other hand, especially healthy guilt, has to do with what we do. We've done something wrong versus shame, which is we are wrong. I've done something bad is healthy guilt, which is a very different approach than shame, which is I am bad. Just to speak to shame and guilt for a moment, did you know that uh, developmental psychologists have discovered that by the month 15, toddlers first have their experience of shame. And it's not until they are older, usually between three and six, that they experience the much more mature, more developed emotion of guilt. It's one of the reasons why shame is so hard to undo in humanity. It is hardwired in us, in this broken experience of what it means to live in the world post the fall, in a world of sin, in a world not as God intends, that at the age of 15 months, we all experience shame for the first time. And often from that place of shame, from that identity, it's a natural overflow to do things that also are contrary to God's heart, one of which is seeking revenge. And what does Paul do? He speaks very differently to these followers of Jesus and he says, beloved. And that is a title that they haven't earned through their good deeds. They haven't earned through not doing the wrong things. Uh, they have it despite what others have said about them, despite what others might have told them that they were. 
that because they've put their faith and trust in Jesus, who is the beloved son of God, and that identity of them being beloved in Christ is now their new identity. They are whole in Christ. They are enough in Christ. They are a masterpiece in Christ. And for you, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are God's beloved. And if you find yourself in a moment where someone has wronged you and there is the desire, if there is the impulse for revenge, would you hear Paul's words, which scripture says were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That means these are God's words. Would you hear God's word to you? Beloved, regardless what someone just said to you, beloved, regardless of the negative tapes that are playing in your mind ever since childhood, perhaps, beloved, that has to be the starting point. Otherwise, everything that Paul says next is impossible to do. Because when you begin that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which you can do right now, regardless of what you've done, who you are, what people have said about you, it's not about earning God's love. It's simply about receiving God's love and the perfect sacrifice that Jesus did for you on the cross. As the book of Romans says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Greek word for righteous is simply the word enough. You right now in your home, wherever you are, can be enough in God's eyes through faith and trust in Jesus. And you will be called, regardless of what people say about you, beloved. So Paul goes on and he says to me and to you and those first followers of Jesus in Rome, beloved. Never avenge yourselves. Now that word avenge, it's a very interesting Greek word. It's a verb. The verb is ek dekontes. Now that verb is actually a verbified noun. Perhaps you've heard me talk about this before, that sometimes in scripture, and we do it today in the 21st century, we will take nouns and we turn them into verbs. Uh, you know, have you ever Googled something? Uh, have you ever tabled a discussion for later? What you're doing in that moment is you're taking a noun and you're turning it into a verb. And the noun is the word ekdikos. And it literally means outside of the law. And so the verb gives this picture. This is what we translate into the word avenge or in some translations, revenge or in some translations, vengeance. This is the image, this is the word picture that Paul is communicating. Again, this is first century Rome speaking the Greek language inspired by the Holy Spirit that this verb of now literally means someone who brings to pass that which they believe to be right, but doing so outside of the law as an avenger, as a punisher, as a lawless mercenary. In fact, that Greek word has its origins in scripture all the way back in Genesis 4. Of course, the Hebrew scriptures is written 
in Hebrew. But this first mention of revenge, of being avenged, of vengeance, occurs in the story of Cain. After he has killed his brother, God very justly communicates to Cain what his consequence, what his punishment would be. You can read about this later even in Genesis 4, 14 through 15. Cain then responds to God. Again, this is the first murder, the first killing in all of scripture and humanity as it's recorded in scripture. Cain then responds to the just punishment that God extends to him. And he says this, this punishment is too much for me. In fact, anyone who meets me may kill me, may seek revenge for what I've done. Then the Lord said to him, not so. In fact, whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. What is going on here in Genesis 4? Now, it's important to know that in the Hebrew language, the number seven has tremendous significance. It's more than just the number before eight and after six. It also communicates wholeness, completion, perfection. One of the reasons why in Genesis 1, we have the account of God's creation taking a number of days so that God then completes it on the seventh day in rest, communicates to us with this highly symbolic, actual imagery of what God has done to say that God not only creates, but God creates with perfection, with completion, with wholeness. And so when God says to Cain, if anyone avenges you, there will be a sevenfold, a perfect, a complete, a whole vengeance. Why? Because it is God who is holy, who is just, who is perfect, who does the avengeance. In other words, God says there is one alone who has perfect justice. There's one alone who has perfect revenge. And that's God. Cain, this is not for you to do. God says this is for me to do. Now here's what's fascinating. Six generations later, we get to a man named Lamech. Later on in Genesis 4. Now six also, like seven, has tremendous symbolism. It's so much more than just the number before seven, the number after five. It means incompleteness. It means weakness. It means evil. 666 is evil magnified. Because three is also a way to communicate exponential of its value. And so here we find ourselves six generations after Cain. Again, it's this man, Lamech direct descendant from Cain. And we are introduced to this man by hearing that he's the first person to practice polygamy. 
And we will soon see in how he speaks to his wives that he treats them like property. He treats them like objects. It shows us a picture of how distorted human relationships can get when we move away from God's heart. Lamech is the epitome of humanity left to our own devices. And I want you to hear these words before we go back to Romans. Lamech says this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So if Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77fold. Here you have this man who has killed somebody. Like Cain, who killed out of jealousy, now Lamech is killed out of revenge. And in his pride and in his arrogance, he uses this phrase, avenge sevenfold, that has been passed down six generations, which is a reminder that only God alone can seek revenge. And he takes that and he wields God's vengeance takes it into his own hands, out of God's hands, and says, in my hands, exponentially more can happen. Seven times with me, it's 70 times seven times. To paraphrase, Lamech in his pride and in his arrogance says, God's way isn't enough for me. I want to seek vengeance. So with that as a backdrop, with all of that origin story history, Paul says, no, don't be Lamech. Don't avenge yourself. Don't take it in your own hands. Don't wield God's wrath. No, 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 no. But what does he say next? And I love this. It doesn't end with a period. He doesn't say, beloved, don't avenge yourselves and that's it, move on. He says, don't avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room. Make space. Back up. Don't get so close. Don't crowd in. Don't get into the space that you should not be. Leave room. Back up. Leave room. For what? For the wrath of God. Now immediately, we run into a problem. We run into a problem because of the word wrath. And this is the wrath of God so inherently, this is a wrath that isn't human wrath, that is godly wrath. And because in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, God says this, we can't understand it. This is what Isaiah says. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, humanity, nor are your ways, humanity, my ways, God says. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, higher than your thoughts. God's wrath is 
infinitely out of our mental grasp. The infiniteness of God cannot have our finite minds wrap around it. And so we run into a problem when we get to the phrase wrath of God because the only picture that we can understand in our finite minds is human wrath, which very often by definition is selfish, is prideful, is distorted, is oppressive, is unjust. And so we have to be very careful to not project our brokenness onto God and in doing so, throw out an aspect of God's character. You know, being a follower of Jesus for 20 years, I, I, I first started reading scripture and I remember even before I came to Christ, I would read scripture and there was something about the wrath of God that, oh, what? I don't want anything to do with this. And it was because I was projecting a human, distorted, broken view of wrath onto a perfect and holy and loving and wrathful God. And there's some people who say, oh, I don't like an Old Testament God. I like that New Testament God because, you know, the Old Testament God is just one filled with wrath. If we say that we misunderstand God's character... Because God alone has the ability to be filled with wrath and love and justice and mercy and beauty and holiness at the same time. And those things are not mutually exclusive. That makes God altogether distinct from us as humans. Now, I had a, a, a doctoral uh, professor, Leonard Sweet, he had this great, great, great phrase. He says, the difference between nowhere and now here is a little space. You see, when we make space for God, something happens, transformation happens. When we don't make space for God and rather we rush into that space and we do what only God can and should do, we actually experience God nowhere in our personal vengeance. But when we make space for God to do only what God can do, it transforms God being nowhere to God now here in every interaction that we have. Because as God fills that space, God doesn't come with just one aspect of God's character. God brings the fullness of God's self to that moment. And when we make space for God's wrath, we are making space for the fullness of God to be present. And like I've said already, that is God's wrath and his love and his mercy and his joy and his beauty and his holiness. Paul says... Make space, back up, leave room for God. But maybe some of you are like, yeah, true. Yeah, but you have no idea. You've got no idea, Drew, what I've been through, how I've been wrong, how I've been hurt, how I've been abused. How dare you? How can you even say the things that you're saying? You don't even know me. You're right. I have no clue what you have been through. 
But there is one who does. Scripture says that one is God in the flesh named Jesus. In fact, you can read later in Isaiah, this beautiful, beautiful section of Scripture where it describes a prophecy 900 years before the birth of Jesus saying that the coming Messiah would carry our infirmities. He would carry our iniquities. He would bear our burdens. He would carry all of our wrongs done to us. You see, Jesus doesn't just cognitively know what you've been through. Isaiah says he has experienced it with you. But still, you might say, Drew, what does this even look like? I mean, how, how do you even not take vengeance in your own? What does it even look like to make space for God? Because doesn't scripture also say that we should give a voice to the voiceless? Yes, it does. Doesn't it say that we should pursue justice? Yes, it does. Then what does it mean in this moment to not seek vengeance, but leave room for the wrath of God? One of the best heartbreaking humbling, inspiring, transforming examples of this lived out as something that happened just a few years ago. And when I hear this story, I am so humbled as a follower of Jesus. I am so led as a follower of Jesus. By hearing the story of Rachel De Hollander. Maybe some of you have heard that name before. She was actually the first woman to come forward bravely with tremendous courage to publicly accuse the man who using his position of power at a university, who had many jobs, including being the team doctor for the United States gymnastics team, used that power to abuse her. And she was the first to come forward publicly. And after she courageously, rightly came forward, over 250 women followed suit courageously sharing how they had been wronged, seeking justice. Now, what I don't want to do is focus on him. I want to focus on her. And the words that she shared, not only to the judge and those in the courtroom, but what she said directly to the man that had abused her. And after outlining the horrors of what he had done, bravely, courageously, fiercely, speaking truth, it inspires me so much to have that courage. She then says this, speaking directly to the man that had abused her. I want you to understand 
why I made this choice, knowing full well what it was going to cost to get here and with very little hope of ever succeeding. I did it because it was right. No matter the cost, it was right. And the farthest I can run from what you have become is to daily choose what is right instead of what I want. You, you have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices, repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what the cost. In our early hearings, you, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of a God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know, forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake rather than you making just one child stumble and to think that you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness for me. The why. Extend that to you as well. How could Rachel say that? Because she had made space for God 
in our life. She didn't turn a blind eye. She didn't bury it. She wasn't complicit with evil by staying silent. Nor did she deny the power of the wrath of God. Nor did she take the wrath of God and wield it in her own hands like Lamech did. But she made space for God. And that gave her the courage to show up. That gave her the courage to speak truth. That gave her the courage to seek justice through the ways that God longed for her to seek justice. And that enabled her to forgive. As Christ extends even to her abuser. And so in making space for God, not only did she experience healing and wholeness and transformation, that could never come from her taking vengeance in her own hands. It opens up the opportunity for God to do what only God can do in that space. I don't know what you've gone through. God does. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God and all of God's character that comes with it. For God says, vengeance is mine. I, God alone says, I will repay. Let's give that job responsibility back to the only one who can do it rightly and justly and lovingly and beautifully. Let's pray. Jesus, I am melted by the love in which you have extended to me and to us, as the book of Romans says, while we were still sinners. While we were doing wrong, while we deserved your wrath, God, you sent your son in love, out of love, to take the hit that we deserve for our sin Because you don't look at us and say, we are wrong. You look at us and acknowledge with heartbreaking reality that we have done wrong. May that not lead us to shame. May that lead us to remorse and guilt and repentance and turn back to you, Jesus. May we be reminded of our belovedness and we make space for you, God, to do only the things that you can do. It's in your mighty matchless name, Jesus, I pray. And we sit together. Amen.